Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from the Carol Shields Auditorium at the Millennium Library, which is undergoing some renovations right now, so you may hear a little noise in the background. In Winnipeg, which is within Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Innu, and Dakota peoples, and in the national homeland of the Red River Métis, our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 40 First Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing In a Sunburned Country by Bill Bryson. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and I promise to do everything in my power to avoid making Crocodile Dundee references during this discussion. Across the table from me is... Uh, good day. My name is Toby. I'm an outreach librarian based out of here at Millennium Library, and uh, across the table from me is... Hi, everybody. My name is Trevor, and I'm the branch head at the Louis Riel Library, or as I like to call it, the Adelaide of Winnipeg. <laughs> we wouldn't do this without you. Whether you're an armchair traveler or a backseat driver, we'd love to know what you think about the books we're reading. You can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. Hang around till the end of the episode to enjoy our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Toby's going to tell us about the author, after which Trevor will give us a summary of the book, but first, we'll check in with the panel. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you? tired it's been an exciting couple of days speaking of excitement i was the first one down to this room today usually i'm not the first one in here usually either of you or both of you are already here so i was the first one in and i think even though i've been in the carol shields auditorium many times over the last 17 years i don't think i've ever put the lights on in this room and it's the most confounding thing there's four light switches which have a little up and down button, and then four little buttons above each one called scene one, scene two, scene three, scene four. It seemed like I should be able to figure out how to put the lights on in this place, but I was pushing the buttons, the scene one, and some came on. I'm like, okay, this is good. And then I tried to push them up, and then I plunged myself in total darkness until all of a sudden I tried again. So you may be looking around and wondering why one corner of the room is in complete darkness. I mean, this is the best I could do, so... Uh, have you guys ever put either lights on or off in this room? Like, what is going on? What Scene one? Has any light switch ever been n- named that way? I think I just pressed scene four on all of them. and it Scene four? Brings, it just comes alive. I, I think so. Wait, are they using this for, like, uh, amateur uh, productions on the weekend? Scene one, scene two? Like, is this thing lit up for a concert? I think it's just a, a lighting system, and that's the terminology they have for it. What yeah. a world. Riveting content. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's what passes for excitement in my life these days is yes. playing with the lights. Yeah, I have nothing more exciting than that. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Shall we go on to uh, Toby and sure. tell us about the author? Okay, so let's talk about Bill Bryson. He was born December 8th, 1951 in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, his father, Bill Bryson Sr., was a sports journalist for the Des Moines Register, and his mother, Agnes Mary McGuire, was the home furnishing editor of the same newspaper. He attended Drake University, but dropped out after two years and decided to backpack around Europe. He visited Britain in 1973 and decided to stay after getting a job in a hospital. It was here that he met Cynthia, a nurse, and the two were married in 1975. 
They moved back to Des Moines so he could finish his degree, and then they returned to Britain where they settled down and had four children. Bryson followed in the footsteps of his parents and was a journalist working at the Bournemouth Evening Echo, The Times, and The Independent. His first book was an English language usage guide, 1983's The Penguin Dictionary of Troublesome Words. In 1989, he published his first travel book, The Lost Continent, Travels in Small Town America. This was about a 14,000-mile road trip he undertook in the U.S. It was meant to be more of a memoir than a travel book, but it did so well his editor wanted him to stick to the genre. He, of course, obliged writing four more travel books. Um, In 1995, he published Notes from a Small Island, which is a travel book on Great Britain. This book was very popular, selling over a million copies and really cementing his relationship with the UK. It was even identified in a 2003 poll as the book that best represents England. In addition to travel writing, he continued to publish books on such diverse subjects such as Shakespeare, domesticity, and America in 1927. His popular science book, A Short History of Nearly Everything, was published in 2003. His memoir about his childhood in Des Moines, The Life and Times of the Thunderbolt Kid, came out in 2006. And his latest book, The Body, A Guide for Occupants, was published in 2019. In addition to his writing, he was Chancellor of Durham University, is the president of the Campaign to Protect Rural England, and has many honorary doctorates. He's been in the news recently as he and several well-regarded UK architects have opposed a plan to demolish a Marks & Spencer store in London, which is in a 92-year-old Art Deco building. In October of 2020, he announced that he was retiring from writing books. Um, As he told Times Radio, I don't know how much of this is pandemic related, but I'm really quite enjoying not doing anything at all. For the first time in literally decades, I've been reading for pleasure and I'm really enjoying it. Whatever time is left to me on this planet, I'd like to spend it indulging myself rather than going out and trying to cover new territory. Mm-hmm. So we wish Bill Bryson well in his retirement. Yes. So what is In a Sunburned Country all about? Well, it's a travel book. It's part of the genre of travel writing or armchair travel. And Bill Bryson tours around Australia over a few months in the late 1990s. It's not one continuous journey, but rather made up of at least three separate trips The first trip was originally written for the travel section of the London Mail newspaper, so he takes a train, the Indian Pacific, from Sydney all across the continent to Perth, stopping partway to experience the outback in a small mining town, and it gives an overview of Australia and his first impressions and some generalizations. The second section of the book, he explores the Boomerang Coast, which is sort of the uh, southeast corner of the continent. And that encompasses the mostly populated area of Australia, including Sydney, its capital, Canberra, Adelaide, and Melbourne. And the last section is he called Around the Edges, which isn't exactly true because not only is he around the edges, but he goes right to the center. But he visits Cairns in the north so that he can experience the Great Barrier Reef and then Darwin, where he has a hilariously horrible hotel experience and then uh, drive to Alice Springs, and he visits the landmark that maybe Australia is most known for, Uluru. Final section, he visits Perth and the western coast. And so that's pretty much in a sunburned country. Bryson blends his own experiences with Australian culture and with stories from Australians' history, and the result is a fun, engaging tour. From the glittering towers of Sydney to the wide expanse of the outback, when you've read this book, you'll know whether you want to hop in a car with him for another adventure. And lucky for us, he's been around the world and written all about it. How do you guys find it? I know it's it's a reread for both of you, right? Uh, it's a reread oh, for no. me. And uh, 
Not for me. All right, I was gonna say before Toby tells us that she didn't like it, uh, I'll just say <laughs> that uh, you know, Bill Bryson is one of my I would say favorite writers, but one of the writers I've read the most of in a genre that I'm partial to. That if usually if I'm gonna pick up a book. Uh, and I don't know which one to turn to. I'll, I'll pick up uh, a travel writing book. So that's mm-hmm. all I'm going to say at this point. It. I was just so-so about this book. I found it a bit tedious. Like he just, you know, how many times will he say Australia is big and hot and empty and mysterious, but I love it. And how many times will he go to a boring museum and tell you about everything he saw and go on a three-hour walk of the suburbs but, you know, he just like he seems like a really nice, likable guy and like a good companion. So I don't like I I can't hate him and I can't hate this book. I just I wasn't particularly wowed by it. With this type of book, I normally like to spread it out a bit because this is a book. Like you say, there's a certain amount of repetition about all oh, the country's big and this and that. But there's lots of interesting little stories and anecdotes and things. And I enjoy those. But I normally like to spread them out more. But. This month, I didn't space out my reading very well. So I read a book at the beginning of the month, and then I had a week off, and I thought, oh, I'll read this book then. But it was the Rocket League World Championships, and I was like, okay, well, that took up all my time. It was the what? Rocket League World Champions. What is that? It's a video game. It's an eSport. Oh, okay. Yeah. Teenagers all around the world play for lots of money, and they're really good at the game, so it's fun to watch. So I didn't read nearly as much as I wanted because I would normally spread this type of book out over several weeks because I like those little bite-sized things. They're not too involved. You don't have to follow a plot through the whole thing. It's very easy to kind of pick up, read a little bit, think, oh, that's cool, and then put it down and do other stuff. But this, I had to rush it this month, so that wasn't optimal. But uh, other than that, I enjoyed it as a travel book. There were some interesting aspects to it and some you know, questionable comments here and there from him as... He always kind of kept me on the line a little bit between being slightly irritating and being uh, very insightful. But uh, overall, I did enjoy it. With it being a reread for me, and it was 20 years ago when I read it, I was worrying that this was going to be a book that wasn't going to stand up. So I was I was kind of wondering how many cringeworthy moments there'd be. And, and there were a few. Some of this book has not aged well. But I was actually pleasantly surprised how quickly I sort of fell back into it. I just sort of, you know, if I was a cat, this kind of book would be my catnip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just the way he writes, the cadence, the sentences, I just sort of get drawn along with them. And uh, I was quite pleasantly surprised that I enjoyed it. Now, having said that, I did feel that it was quite disjointed. And like you said, Toby, that it seemed like he would explain something in one part and then, you know, a hundred pages later, explain the exact same thing. And I don't have an example of it, but there are a number of times where I felt like he almost cobbled together two or three bits of writing into one and that the editor kind of just gave it a light touch. We know he's admitted that he this isn't one continuous trip, that this is three or four separate trips. And I almost feel like he may have written this at separate times. And then I don't know whether there was like a timing issue to get it out before the Olympics or, or what, but it's not one of his strongest books. I felt like in some points he was kind of coasting and uh, some of his earlier travel writing I, I feel is better and it's kind of interesting I think it was after this book he kind of turned from travel writing for a bit and he started doing kind of about different kinds of books like the book about history of science or the book that's called at home where he's just basically talking about domesticity as, as you mentioned and he has the one about the human body and Shakespeare so I almost feel like maybe he himself was a little tired of the whole travel writing genre and it did it did come through uh, sometimes 
I felt too like it was a travel book. And like you said, you can definitely tell that he wrote it out over a long period of time. Because I found the the later section more interesting than the earlier section. Like the, the last third of the book, I think I found much more interesting than the early part. And I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe it was because the stories were more interesting. Like My favorite part of his writing is the little anecdotes that he pulls out from Australian history. The way he puts them in context with each other. Especially, you know, like, for some reason, no one talks about this guy, even though he was as good a pilot as Lindbergh and, you know, did many more difficult things, but nobody knows about him. And it's like, yeah, that, that kind of thing is very interesting, you know. I live for that. But that's also not really so much about travel. That's like little bits of history and culture. And those are the parts that I think he was best at. Complaining about how crappy a service at a hotel was is like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's a, it's a universal travel experience, I think, but at the same time, it doesn't read well for me. It's funny you should say that because those sections were the ones that I liked the most. Like I thought that <laughs> the book came most alive when he was angry and he was kind of curmudgeonly and, and he wasn't afraid to like just say exactly how he thought about the service at this hotel. I'm glad the whole book wasn't like that because that would become tiresome. But there were a couple of times where you could just tell he was just unleashed. And because the rest of the book is so sort of measured, those sections really jumped out at me and I, and I enjoyed them. But hmm. There's I also, know. I feel like, those sections where he finds a topic that personally he finds funny and then goes on a tirade about it, like cricket, or like the whole scene at the beginning with him boogie boarding, or, um, oh, what else was there? Oh, a bit about how he was sleeping, like, in a car, and I was just, I was kind of annoyed with that. I was like, I don't find this as funny as you do, and... I don't know. Like, in a way, this book felt like it was written, if I had a 70-year-old Anglo-American grandpa, like, this is the kind of book that I feel like he would write. <laughs> totally. And I'm like, yeah, grandpa, that's not funny. <laughs> Curmudgeonly old man was definitely a, a feature of it, <laughs> but fortunately, not overdone. He is funny and educated and well-spoken and quite a vocabulary. He really liked to toss in lots of different words. When I think of Bill Bryson, I sometimes compare him to, you know, like at university where there's a, you have a favorite professor and it doesn't matter what that professor's teaching, whatever the course is, you'll, you'll take the course because you know, whatever it is that that person will be interesting and make it engaging. And I always think of Bill Bryson that way, that no matter what the topic is, whether it's science, whether it's history, whether it's mostly travel, I'm going to get something out of it. I'm going to enjoy the experience. Mm -hmm. And I did really appreciate his enthusiasm for the country, because I have to admit, Australia is not one of those countries I was ever terribly interested in visiting. It's like, yeah, it's warm, but, you know, it's I always thought of it as like big, dry, um, empty, a lot of interesting animals that can kill you. And just of the countries in that area, I'd be much more interested in visiting New Zealand. But I have to admit, I'm more interested in Australia than I was based on uh, some of the insights and some of the descriptions of the places that he visited. Like yeah. I would, I would really like to see Uluru if I ever make the trip over there. The image of just standing there and being in awe of something that you already seen like a million pictures of is like, yeah, okay, you know, there are things like that where you just being in their presence is impressive on its own. And now I kind of want to have that experience. So I appreciate that a lot about the book. I have been to Australia. Um, it was actually a bit of an afterthought. I initially planned to spend three months in New Zealand, and then I got there and I was like, this country's too small for three months. So I spent two months in New Zealand and then one in Australia. 
I started in Sydney and went up the coast to Cairns. It was around 2001 that I went, so a similar time to when this book came out, and I expected to see my experience reflected in here. But, I mean, it's such a vast country, and there were so many things that I saw that he didn't see, and vice versa, and I, I really, yeah, there was nothing very familiar about what he said. <laughs> That's such a good point about, you know, this, this genre is that it they, they aren't guidebooks yeah. and that they are places, experiences filtered through a certain set of eyes. In this case, it's a, uh, you know, a white middle-aged man who's lived in the United States and Britain, and he's doing all the things that a white middle-aged man on holiday would probably do, like visit Lots museums and, you know, you know uh, drive around and go for long walks and things. And, uh, and drink beer. And drink lots of beer, yes. yes. Victoria Bitter was a particular <laughs> favorite brand of his. And, and look at giant earthworms. and Yes, yes. yeah. Yeah, I would have taken a very different trip than Mr. Bryson. That's for sure. <laughs> Although I don't think I would have passed up the train trip. That sounded pretty great. Although the the writing part, I did, thought was the, one of the weakest parts of the book. But I just the idea of going on a train from Sydney to Perth across, I think, would be super fun. I just looked that up, and um, it's like $1,800. 1800 Australian dollars. So I don't know what that is in Canadian, but that's like an expensive, yeah. expensive train ride. Now, is that like... That would include the meals and stuff? Yes, oh, yeah. that includes the meals. Yeah. Um, and uh, like a sleeping. Because at one point in the book, he refers to the coach area yes. where it just would seem like it was a, like a horrible... I mean, I'm sure he was playing it up too for for kind of dramatic uh, effect. But it sounded like, yeah, it, it would become a miserable experience to travel all that way in coach. I don't know. I The one time I've been on a train, it was in coach, like from Winnipeg to... Uh, go Vancouver, somewhere like that. And it was coaching, but you could recline the seats. They were fairly comfortable. They were spacious enough. It was like I was young at the time, so me and my brothers, and uh, we I must have been maybe 10. But uh, yeah, no. It was, well, if you enjoyed that dance, just imagine having like a like a roomette where you uh, you get up and you go to the dining car and you get food. And then you when you come back, your your room's been magically turned mm-hmm. into a bedroom and mm-hmm. and you can uh, climb into a bed with nice, warm, like flannel sheets. And in the morning, you put the window up and you're in a different province. So if you enjoyed yeah. coach. <laughs> I feel like we need to go on a train trip. I kind of always wanted to be in a like in a room like that on a train. I mean, I used to read Agatha Christie books a lot, and that was a common feature of them is riding on a train and being in your little room. And I always thought that was interesting, but never got the chance. Yeah, even though it felt kind of added on at the beginning of the book, I am glad that Bill Bryce included a train trip because that is a very common sort of element of travel writing. It seems like if you're going to pick up a travel book, chances are there's going to be a train involved at some point. And one of my favorite travel writers, Paul Theroux, I can't even count them for books he's written. They're basically him deciding, I'm going to take this train and <laughs> talk about it. There must be six or seven of them. Hmm. One of the things he mentioned during the book was that he, when he's in another country, he likes to read the local paper. And uh, I just thought I'd take this opportunity to point out that if you're a Winnipeg Public Library member, with your library card, you can access Press Reader online, and they carry newspapers from all over the world. I checked this morning, and there's more than 50 Australian newspapers uh, available on Press Reader. So take advantage. Read about another country. It is interesting. There was a time a couple of years ago where I was reading newspapers from, I forget which country now, but it was in Africa. 
and uh, just reading about local events in another country that, like Bryson said in the book, that have nothing to do with my life and that will never impact me in any way. But it's interesting to hear what's impacting people in another place. So if you want to travel vicariously, check out the newspapers on Press Reader. I really like that uh, in-episode promo. I feel like we're kind of doing like old-timey radio. <laughs> yes. I mean, this book is pretty old, and it felt old. I feel like reading it as an artifact is the best way to approach it, because I don't know. Like I I guess when I, when I read a book like this, I'm thinking, oh, I want to go to this place, and I want to see this thing, but... All of these references are 20 years old at this point, and I'm sure so much has changed. I mean, like, since this book was written, the internet has come into its own, and I'm sure that connectivity has changed a lot of cities and towns and infrastructure in Australia. So, yeah. I'm really curious how well internet has been able to get out to a lot of these small outposts that he was going through. Those are places where connection was... uh, limited anyway i mean better obviously at the point that he was traveling than it was 50 or 100 years prior to that but still long distances to get places and how well wired would they be out there yeah i mean i even looked up that like little town right outside uluru where all the um hotels and hostel is and stuff and like there's so much stuff there like it's a little resort just in the middle of australia and i bet it has so many more amenities now including probably internet than it did when he wrote this book mm-hmm. yeah i mean with you talking uh, about like an artifact another part that makes me think of that is he spent quite a bit of time towards the end of the book talking about the remote learning aspect mm-hmm. of you know, the kids growing up on these stations or these farms and he was describing it like as if it was like this novel thing about kids learning you know through distance ed and and i'm thinking like oh man you know after two three years of this pandemic i'm like you know you don't have to tell us about remote learning <laughs> you know but 20 years ago i mean mm-hmm. that was probably something of note to talk about and he was saying himself like he remembered as a kid seeing some documentary about it and how it just sort of really stood out his mind that you could sit there and do your uh, you know schoolwork in your pajamas or whatever and you're right with the internet like i mean as you guys know i'm uh addicted to uh google street view and a book like this i mean is is not good for me because uh i i go off in so many different directions in fact you might remember there's one i can't remember the name of the town but he visited a little town that had a museum that there was like i think a a pow camp that was just outside the town during world war ii and so he went in and he was just really taken by this little hologram that appeared you can you can go on youtube and there's actually someone has actually gone in with their camera and record and I'm sure it hasn't changed in 20 years. And so I watched the little, and you went, yeah, it's like, I mean, he, he was really impressed. He was with that really, so I was like, like he was saying it was like one of the best things he's seen anywhere. And okay. Yeah. I'll admit if you weren't expecting to see that, mm-hmm. it's kind of, it's kind of cool, but I mean, maybe we'll put a link to it, uh, in our show notes and you, you can decide what you think. I mean, I, I watched him like it's as he described, but seeing it somehow wasn't, it took something a little away, I think, from actually just imagining what it could have been like. Hmm. But that's on me. I mean, I, no one's no one's forcing me to go on the internet. No one. No. It's my own thing. Yeah. We've tried to stop you. I know. And you still, I know. Yeah. Taking my Wi-Fi password away. <laughs> this book is so full of distractions. I was thinking of you as I read it because yeah. I, I kept jotting things down to look up on Google Maps later. And um, have you? did you happen to look, look at the street view of Uluru? 
Yes. It's magnificent, even on Street View. Yeah, um, right. Or just like, you know, looking at these tiny little towns and then zooming out and out and out and just realizing how isolated they are and just like getting your little Google Street guy on there and looking around yeah. and it's just flat and barren and... Yeah, yeah, you you really, you really get it, uh, Toby, mm-hmm. don't you? Yeah, <laughs> I do. Well, yeah, not only Allura, I even checked out the Devil's Marbles. Remember they stopped oh. at that thing too? Those giant stones. Uh, it was on their way down to Allura. Yeah, they're pretty impressive. They're big round boulders. How know? round? Like perfectly round? No. Okay. They're misshapen, but they're they seem to be a lot of them, okay. and uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and they are large. Like you know, like if you see them, then you're like, yeah, this is worth a stop. That was, I think, one of the more interesting things about the book was that there were just so many different kind of roadside attractions, essentially, just that they were so spread out in this huge country and so remote from each other that they weren't well visited. And I thought that would be interesting if you had the time. When I went to Australia, I went to this place called Fraser Island, which is an all sand island off the East Coast. And I thought it was amazing. And I'm like, oh, surely he'll go there. Surely this is like a big mm-hmm. deal in Australia. But he doesn't mention it. And, you know, went to the Whitsunday Sunday Islands, another place. I was like, yeah, he'll talk about this. This is a big deal. And mm-hmm. no. no. I, and even in the last chapter, he was like. Hmm. And I was tempted to go to this place because yeah. it sounded really good. And it's like, oh, it's like a thousand miles away. And it's like, I can relate oh, to that. You know, on a holiday when you're getting towards the second last day, last day, and you just think, oh, I can just keep going. I can just keep going. And then he's like, no, no, I can't. I can't do that. You know, but You'd be here forever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it sounds to me or the I mean, Bill Bryson seems to want to stay to the more kind of uh, developed parts, like say. And so it sounds like some of the things you saw, Toby, were more maybe the natural things in Australia. And I mean, sure, he went to the Great Barrier Reef and stuff, but it seems like he was, anytime he kind of got out of the cities, he was felt like he was, you know, about to be attacked or killed by something. And he, um, maybe that's when they're, but, or it also could just be because, yeah, Australia is such a huge and interesting place that there are endless things to, to see and visit. I just recently reread the uh, bit about that explorer um, coming upon that little wallaby and devouring oh, it. Raw. Mm. Right, fur and so, all. Yeah, just just thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, if you're into the genre of like survival stories, uh, that I'm sure there are a lot more stories in Australia that would be interesting. There was a TV series called I Survived, which is all about people surviving disasters and the things they did to get through it. Mm. And yeah, I feel like some of the stories that he mentioned briefly here could definitely have been covered in that fashion. I did find, too, the discussion multiple times that he brought up uh, Aborigines in society there to be very interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I... It was very sketchy what he wrote about the indigenous populations in Australia. And I, that was one of the faults of this book, I think. It's a deep subject, clearly. And uh, it was only covered in a few places in the book. A lot of the interactions he had were like with like a few people here, a few people there. So obviously the uh, opinions they expressed would not necessarily be representative. But like the uh, the teachers who were talking about, yeah, the Aboriginal parents, they just go off into the woods and abandon their kids on a walkabout on walkabout and uh but they're lovely people when they're not drinking you know it's like eh, okay uh the thing is i feel like you would probably 20 years ago if you talked to canadians you might hear the same thing well that's the thing i was feeling it as kind of like a reflection of canada in a lot of ways like 
Although I, I haven't, like, you know, the, the next person he talked to, he mentioned talking to the teachers and their uh, kind of circumspect thing. And he goes, oh, yes, the Aborigines, a problem. They all deserve to be hanged. And I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I have read things like that uh, said in in Canada. Uh, one time when I was in, working in the local history room, I was doing a research question for someone. And I came across an old journal of someone who had traveled through Manitoba. And that person very explicitly talked about how they were longing for the day that the Aboriginal population was wiped out completely, um, which was startling to read and and, uh, very unpleasant. And to just hear it expressed uh, so recently directly to someone's face, like I I feel like that's the kind of thing that even where we have a lot of racism, which is like still a problem we're dealing with, is usually not so bold and in your face. But it it was startling. Yeah, and I think it's telling too. Like when I, I read the book the first time 20 years ago, I think I just, you know, blew past that. But this time reading it, it was those passages that really stood out to me as being problematic. And I think I've changed as a person too, and uh, our society, and we're looking at things differently. So yeah, an artifact. It's a, it's a travel book and, and a time machine. When they described the, uh, essentially the Australian version of residential schools where they also ripped the kids from their parents and initiated deep generational trauma, which uh, we have also done here in Canada. I guess it's not surprising, but it's disappointing to read how universal the experience of colonization just causing this kind of damage to a culture well, I think there there are several you know parallels between Australia's development as a country and Canada's development, being both British colonies and Indigenous populations already existing, living there, and the conflict. So it's yeah, it is not surprising that we're able to draw so many connections, but it is unnerving to read something that seems so familiar, but yet on the other side of the world. And what feels like a completely kind of exotic place, but it's the same things are happening. But I think in Canada, in Australia, you know, the governments and societies are are working towards reconciliation. You know, you um, brought up that Luru statement, um, which seems to be a bit of a a treaty um, between the Australian Aborigines and the government. And I bet like if Bill Bryson went to Australia today and wrote a similar book, um, he would have a lot more to say. Like, I bet there's just so much more knowledge and understanding about the culture. Mm -hmm. I would hope so. Yeah. It's hard to segue into anything else from there, huh? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the other thing that uh, I thought I would repeat was that joke he told about, uh, the Australian rules football. (laughs) Do Do it. Yeah. So a man arriving for the grand final in Melbourne is surprised to find the seat beside his empty. Tickets for the grand final are sold out weeks in advance and empty seats unknown. So he says to the man on the other side of the seat, excuse me, do you know why there's no one in this seat? Oh, it's my wife's, answers the second man, but I'm afraid she died. Well, that's terrible. I'm sorry. Yes, she never missed a match. But couldn't you have given the ticket to a friend or relative? Oh, no, they're all at the funeral. (laughs) Uh, That's uh, passion for sports. Yeah. And speaking of sports, uh, I really did connect with that section where he was driving those long stretches and listening to the cricket matches on on the radio and trying to figure it out because it reminded me of, uh, like, I don't know anything about cricket. but I No enjoy, one does. No, no. And it doesn't seem like anyone does. And, but I enjoy baseball. 
and I feel like there are some similarities, although not enough that you can really watch one and understand the other. But in the early days of the pandemic, I would say in that first spring, I was starved for watching baseball. I missed it. And, but so you can imagine to my delight when I went for a walk in my neighborhood and a local park, there was a group of uh, young men playing what appeared to be cricket. Hmm. I couldn't understand it, but I, I sat on a bench and watched it because it was a sport. The, these guys seemed to be having fun. Uh, and then after a while, I felt kind of self-conscious that I was, I was sitting at this bench longer than what a person would normally sit at the bench. So next time I brought a book. Hmm. <laughs> and it next was, time. Yeah. <laughs> these guys were playing all the time because, you know, in those early days, we, no one had anything going on. And uh, I, I still, I can't say I understand cricket, but I, I picked up a few things while watching this game and it was the best I could get at the time, sports-wise. So this, those passages in the book uh, remind me of that little sad experience I had over the first few weeks of the pandemic where... Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know the great thing is if you like cricket, apparently the matches can sometimes go for days, mm-hmm. and they like, stop for lunch. And stuff. <laughs> yeah, and f- overnight, overnight and things yeah. like that. Yeah, Douglas Adams in one of his Hitchhikers books actually has the a whole section where he's making fun of cricket games and how long they go on. <laughs> and also, the aliens in that one were playing a space version of cricket, which would result in destroying the universe. But <laughs> you know, that made it a little more interesting. Along with Googling specific places, did you Google any animals or plants or fossils or... No. No, you didn't. Oh. I'm strictly a uh, <laughs> map uh, Googler. Okay. Wait, wait, it sounds oh, like... just like the, the jellyfish. Um, oh, like those the box jellyfish. Box jellyfish, yeah, the Portuguese yeah. man of war. I mean, they're yeah. beautiful, but extremely deadly. I also looked up those like rock creatures, stromatolites. Mm-hmm. Those things at the very end where he, he yeah. was he, in awe talking about how they're like the oldest things. Yeah, they're, they look like rocks. Yeah. They're rocks. Yeah. But uh, fascinating how they apparently generated the oxygen necessary for other life to form. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and so that, it's their fault. And that, the, <laughs> and that, the, as far as I know, that's one of the very few places on Earth where they are still just kind of doing their thing. Yeah, yeah. And if you Google them, you see the place where he went. Like he describes, it's like this walkway out into the water. And I guess, you know, that's the only place where you can see these things mm. well. So any photographs of them are, are this specific place. Oh, and, yeah. And I guess you see little sort of uh, air bubbles coming yeah. up from them once in a while. And that that's yeah. exciting for people to see. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they they just look like rocks in shallow water. Oh, like yeah. it's, yeah, it's... Australia is amazing for being the only place on Earth where a lot of things can live or do live. Yeah, that's another thing, a point I think you really drove home well, that it's you're going to see things you never see anywhere else if you come here. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it made me more interested in it as a whole. So definitely a fun book. I just looked up a Willy Willy this morning, which is like a dust storm. Okay. It like goes like 100 feet in the air. It's just like a long, narrow column that Whoa. he describes while driving through the outback. Mm-hmm. Willy Willy. <laughs> fun to say. Mm-hmm. A lot of Australian terms are fun to say. They are. (laughs) The place names were just amazing. Mm -hmm. Like if I just said, yeah, I went to Bongaroo, uh, you'd have to believe that that might be a place name. (laughs) And I think it is. I'm not sure. And it's funny is there are actual place names and then there are like slang names. Like if an Australian says, oh, yeah, he lives out in Whoop Whoop, that just means out, out there. Like if they say, you know, it's just like a slang for somewhere out there. Like in the sticks? Yeah, like in the sticks or in the outback. But if they say Whoop Whoop. And, mm-hmm. uh, but that could also be in the, very easily be a name of a town uh, in Australia, but it's not. So it's, it gets very complicated. 
And they don't really pronounce their R's either. So, like, we say Cairns, but they would say Cairns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, before we move on to our next section, anyone got any kind of final remarks? Would you recommend the book to people who like travel books? I don't read travel books, so I don't know. I didn't particularly enjoy it, so I wouldn't recommend it. But I know you enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, for sure, Bill Bryson, uh, if if someone's interested in reading travel writing, I would I would recommend. Uh, I mean, I would say he would be definitely on the on the Mount Rushmore of travel writers if I had to create one. Who uh, else would be on there? Paul Theroux, for sure. Uh, Bruce Chatwin. Maybe Will Ferguson for a little Canadian content. As you, as you can see, I picked up four white men because that is sort of a sticking point for the genre that although they're not exclusively written by white Westerners, it seems like the genre is one of the few that are still kind of exclusively that way. I know, having said that, I've read lots of travel writing from people of color and uh, women, but uh, it seems like the, it's still the domain of the colonial kind of experience of going somewhere to somewhere else and then coming back and talking about it. So, but then I, since this was a book that, or at least this was a genre that was picked by our readers, I thought maybe we should read one that's more kind of like an example of the kind that's out there rather than read uh, a, an outlier. But maybe if we ever want to do a travel book again, we could pick one that's maybe not quite so on the nose. Oh, with that... Uh, we'll move on to our next segment. Can you tell me a book I would also like? Well, you know, I was just talking about the uh, Mount Rushmore of travel writers, so uh, I hadn't have not one but two books, if I if I may. It's sort of they go it together. So anyway, uh, Paul Theroux, one of the foundational books in travel writing, is the Great Railway Bazaar, and it was published in 1975, a year after I was born. It details a four-month train journey he took from London uh, and went all through, uh, you know, the Middle East and the Indian subcontinent and Southeast Asia. And then he came home, the northern route, by the Trans-Siberian Express. And the entire book, unlike in a sunburned country, which was three or four trips stitched together, this was done completely without any stops. It's not as sort of funny, ha-ha, but I always think of Paul Theroux as like my grumpy but favorite uncle who will be sending me postcards on his adventures. And so I always think of his books like that. So, so there's this book. And then coupled with this one is one called Ghost Train to the Eastern Star, which came out in 2008, a year after I became a librarian. And he retraces most of his route in this one, but in 2008, and he sees what's changed, what's the same, uh, and kind of updates the route. And just, just a little kind of interesting story is when I was on a trip to England, I was reading The Great Railway Bazaar. Uh, I had this beat up paperback, and then I was in a bookstore in Oxford. And wouldn't you know, they had a signed copy Ooh. of uh, this, and I'm, I have it here so for our podcast listeners. It's uh, a nice hardcover signed by him, so I bought it. And I put it at the bottom of my suitcase so it wouldn't get wrecked. And I carried on reading my, my beat-up uh, paperback. And so it's kind of a special book for me. And then when Ghost Train to the Eastern Star came out, I think I told the story to one of my, my staff at the library. And she just so happened to be going on a trip to England. And wouldn't you know, Paul Theroux was signing books in London. And she bought me a copy of uh, Ghost Train to the Eastern Star signed by him as well. So uh, <laughs> it's uh, kind of cool that I have both books, both signed by him and... So those are my recommendations. Great Railway Bazaar and Ghost Train to the Eastern Star. Excellent. 
I don't have a book this month. I um, I really wanted to recommend um, some Australian fiction, and I realized I don't read a lot of Australian fiction, which is a gap I will aim to fill. There are some writers who I didn't realize who are Australian who I have read books by, um, Leanne Moriarty, Graham Simsian, and Marcus Zusak. But I wouldn't really recommend any of the books by those authors. Um, so I'm recommending. <laughs> <laughs> wow, harsh. Um, I'm recommending a movie, Muriel's Wedding. Have you? You're nodding yeah. appreciatively. It's from 1994. It's briefly mentioned in this book. It is about a woman named Muriel, played by Tony Collette, who is this young social outcast living in the fictional town of Porpoise Spit um, in Australia. And she listens to a lot of ABBA and she daydreams about this fantasy wedding she wants to have. Her and her friend, who is played by Rachel Griffiths from Six Feet Under, um, they move to Sydney, um, where Muriel changes her name and tries to kind of redesign her life. But it is, it's so heartfelt. It's the movie I watch when I'm having a bad day and I want to be cheered up. Um, it's just delightful, really feel good movie. And it's streaming on Canopy. So Excellent. you can watch it. Whenever you want with your library card. Do you like that one? Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, and uh, not to take anything away from Muriel's Wedding because it's great, but one of my all time favorite Australian movies is uh, Strictly Ballroom oh. as well, which is, uh, again, one of those, it's, it's one of Baz Luhrmann's uh, earliest movies. Uh, it's just like, 90 minutes of, of pure like joy and fun. And I remember the tagline for it is a life lived in fear is a life half lived. Uh, for me, the most interesting part of this book were the, uh, all the little anecdotes about different things. I love books where there's just lots of information about different interesting things. And if that's what you enjoyed too, I'm going to recommend stiff, the curious lives of human cadavers by Mary Roach. And actually, anything by Mary Roach. Uh, Mary Roach is a science writer from the U.S. Uh, she has a sense of humor so dry you'd think she was British. <laughs> and uh, she has a penchant for titles, too, single-word titles that really grab your eye, like Stiff. There's also Bonk, Spook, Gulp, Grunt. She has one where it's three words, Packing for Mars, but that's an aberration. That's <laughs> probably because it involves outer space. But uh, anyway, this one, a quick summary. For 2,000 years, cadavers, some willingly, some unwittingly, have been involved in science's boldest strides and weirdest undertakings. They've tested France's first guillotines, ridden the NASA space shuttle, been crucified in a Parisian laboratory to test the authenticity of the Shroud of Turin, and helped solve the mystery of TWA Flight 800. For every new surgical procedure, from heart transplants to gender confirmation surgery, cadavers have helped make history in their quiet way. There's not a single thread kind of underlying her books, just the main subject, like in this case, uh, cadavers, and just lots of interesting stories. And by the end of it, you may not remember half of the stories, but you'll know you were entertained, and the ones you do remember are ones you're probably going to want to share with someone at some point. Mm -hmm. So, Stiff by Mary Roach. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, wherein our panelists talk about a word or phrase that has been on our minds lately. So my word is um, antipod. In this book um, and in general, you often hear antipodes, which refers to Australia or New Zealand or antipodians, um, which refers to the people who live in those countries. So I was curious where that came from. So antipode means the direct opposite of something else. So it's used in geography 
the antipode of any spot on Earth is the point on Earth's surface diametrically opposite to it. So a straight line connecting the two would pass through the Earth's center. So the north and the south poles are antipodes to each other. In the Northern Hemisphere, the antipodes refer to Australia and New Zealand, though it's not really entirely accurate. The antipode of Australia is the North Atlantic Ocean, and the antipode of New Zealand are parts of France, Spain, Portugal, and Morocco. And really, it's just a small minority of land that are antipodes, due partly to the fact that there's much less land in the Southern Hemisphere than in the Northern Hemisphere. But um, yeah, there you go. Antipode, or antipodes. Well, your word really uh, segues nicely into into mine, uh, speaking of land and water, because I was thinking of the term, the seven seas, and you hear sailing the seven seas, and, and what it means, and I was just like, is that is that really a thing? And so, like most nerd words on here, it is and it isn't. The seven seas, when you talk about it, it means different things depending on who you're talking to, when you're talking to them in history, and where you're talking about it with. So, for example... Uh, the first time this term was used that it's been recorded was in Greek literature, which, you know, it always seems like if you, you can trace things back to the Greeks. So the seven seas then were the Aegean, the Adriatic, Mediterranean, Black, Red, and Caspian seas. And then they threw in the Persian Gulf uh, and they called it a sea to make up seven. Uh, but in medieval European literature, the phrase referred to the North Sea, the Baltic, Atlantic, Mediterranean, Black, Red, and Arabian seas. And then, of course, when trade picked up across the Atlantic, the concept of the seven seas changed again. So then mariners then refer to the seven seas as the Arctic, the Atlantic, the Indian, the Pacific, the Mediterranean, the Caribbean, and the Gulf of Mexico. It generally is just sort of a term that can be used for sailing on the ocean. But the weird thing is, is if you use it today, some people will refer to the seven seas now as the North Atlantic, the South Atlantic, the North Pacific, the South Pacific, the Indian, and the Southern Oceans. But, I mean, that's really stretching a metaphor. I mean, who talks about the Northern Pacific and the Southern Pacific as different oceans? It's the Pacific, right? Maybe if you're a sailor. Oh, maybe if you're a sailor. Oh, boy. So then that's the seven. So it's more like the 28 seas, or I don't know how many there are. That's it. The seven seas. Yeah. Plus a sea and an ocean seem like different things to me. So Yeah. Oh, yeah. for sure. I don't know what to think. Yeah. And I don't know what to say for my word now because Toby stole mine. Oh, no. Uh, I guess because it got mentioned so often in the book. I was like, why does he keep saying Antipodian? It's like... Uh, <laughs> Do you have anything to add that I didn't... Well, slightly. I um, I was looking at Merriam-Webster, and uh, it said there that we had borrowed the word antipode over 600 years ago. It first appeared in a translation of a Latin text as a word designating men that have their feet against our feet. That is, the inhabitants of the opposite side of the world. The word originated in Greek, combining anti, meaning opposite, and the root pod, meaning foot. So antipode, other foot, or opposite foot. I thought that was interesting. And nowadays, uh, you can use it to just mean like contrary or opposite of something. And when you say antipodian, you're referring specifically to Australia and New Zealand, even if you're not directly opposite them, because everything is relative to Britain, of course, because Britain was a colonial power and uh, sun never set on the empire, etc., etc. Do they uh, refer to themselves as antipodians? I don't know. Mm -hmm. It would be kind of weird if they did, but maybe they do. We'll have to ask an Australian. Okay, we'll get on it. Yes. We have the internet, so we can just, you know, spam their message boards. <laughs> and you guys call yourself Antipodian? 
Speaking of that, I spent quite some time on the uh, city of Perth's public library system. Oh. And, uh, Are they I, hiring? Well, they, I couldn't see an obvious button where I could click to find out. But I was thinking, you know, I could live in Perth. Looks like a nice, nice little city. Yeah. Maybe someone there could answer our question oh, about there the go. Antipodean. How's their library? Ah, I mean, it looks nice. Although for the, it's weird because it seems like each library... It, first of all, it looked like a city of three million people only had one public library. And you're like, that can't be right. It's just because the way that they, they do their system is different, that each each little community has their own library and they're all listed separately. But I think hmm. it must also be connected in some way. So it wasn't like you clicked on one website and it said, here are our branches. It was like each each library had its own kind of website. It's very confusing. And I didn't spend so much time on it that I figured it out, but I thought hmm. I'd just share that with you. It's probably the Australian spirit of independence. Right. It took so long for those uh, states and territories to come together that different railway uh, widths and uh, you know so yeah maybe maybe that's a holdover from that time maybe the scads of librarians in perth who listen to this podcast can uh, can email us and let us know yeah yeah that'd sure. be appreciated thanks co-workers across the world yes we salute you our antipodian <laughs> Neighbor? colleagues Coll- neighbors cousins and friends <laughs> yes <laughs> brothers lovers and cousins Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this month. Thank you so much for joining us, dear readers. For next month, we're going to read and discuss Empire of Wild by Sherry Demoline. Brokenhearted Joan has been searching for her husband, Victor, for almost a year, ever since he went missing on the night they had their first serious argument. When terrible hungover morning in a Walmart parking lot in a little town near Georgian Bay, she is drawn to a revival tent where the local Métis have been flocking to hear a charismatic preacher named Eugene Wolfe. By the time she staggers into the tent, the service is over, but as she is about to leave, she hears an unmistakable voice. She turns, and there Victor is. The same face, the same eyes, the same hands. But his hair is short, and he's wearing a suit, and he doesn't recognize her at all. No, he insists, she's the one suffering a delusion. He's the Reverend Wolf, and his only mission is to bring his people to Jesus. Except that, as Joan soon discovers, that's not all the enigmatic Wolf is doing. With only the help of Aegean, a foul-mouthed euchre shark with a knowledge of the old ways, and her odd Johnny Cash-loving 12-year-old nephew Zeus, Joan has to find a way to remind the Reverend Wolf of who he really is, if he really is Victor. Her life, and the life of everyone she loves, depends on it. Have comments or book suggestions for us? Send us an email. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find Time Time to read. practicing my death rattle for when the day comes that's convincing yeah yeah would you uh be concerned if you heard that from me in a medical uh, if i was in the hospital 
maybe not concerned. No. No. He's but like, like, ah, that's classic <laughs> trash. Yeah, that's like an old man noise. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm getting there. Yeah. Every day, older. 